We've just released the entire back catalogue of Send Me to Sleep. Many episodes, which were previously only available to premium subscribers, are now publicly available and completely free, including The Wizard of Oz, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Around the World in 80 Days, and so many more. So be sure to check out our back catalogue, so you never miss out on a good night's rest. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 18 to 20 of A Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 18 The Wrong Road Next day, our departure took place at a very early hour. There was no time for the least delay. According to my account, we had five days' hard work to get back to the place where the galleries divided. I can never tell all the sufferings we endured upon our return. My uncle bore them like a man who has been in the wrong, that is, with concentrated and suppressed anger. Hans, with all the resignation of his pacific character, and I, I confess that I did nothing but complain and despair. I had no heart for this bad fortune. But there was one consolation. Defeat at the onset would probably upset the whole journey. As I expected from the first, our supply of water gave completely out on our first day's march. Our provision of liquids was reduced to our supply of skeedom, but this horrible, nay, I will say it, this infernal liquor burnt the throat, and I could not even bear the sight of it. I found the temperature to be stifling. I was paralyzed with fatigue. More than once I was about to fall insensible to the ground. The whole party then halted, and the worthy Icelander and my excellent uncle did their best to console and comfort me. I could, however, plainly see that my uncle was contending painfully against the extreme fatigues of our journey and the awful torture generated by the absence of water. 
At length, a time came when I ceased to recollect anything, when all was one awful, hideous, fantastic dream. At last, on Tuesday, the 7th of the month of July, after crawling on our hands and knees for many hours, more dead than alive, we reached the point of junction between the galleries. I lay like a log, an inert mass of human flesh on the arid lava soil. It was then ten in the morning. Hans and my uncle, leaning against the wall, tried to nibble away at some pieces of biscuit, while deep groans and sighs escaped from my scorched and swollen lips. Then I fell off into a kind of deep lethargy. Presently, I felt my uncle approach and lift me up tenderly in his arms. Poor boy, I heard him say in a tone of deep commiseration. I was profoundly touched by these words, being by no means accustomed to signs of weakness in the professor. I caught his trembling hands in mine and gave them a gentle pressure. He allowed me to do so without resistance, looking at me kindly all the time. His eyes were wet with tears. I then saw him take the gourd which he wore at his side. To my surprise, or rather to my stupefaction, he placed it to my lips. Drink, my boy, he said. Was it possible my ears had not deceived me? Was my uncle mad? I looked at him with, I am sure, quite an idiotic expression. I could not believe him. I too much feared the counteraction of disappointment. Drink, he said again. Had I heard all right? Before, however, I could ask myself the question a second time. A mouthful of water cooled my parched lips and throat. One mouthful, but I do not believe it brought me back to life. I thanked my uncle by clasping my hands. My heart was too full to speak. Yes, said he, one mouthful of water, the very last. Do you hear, my boy, the very last? I have taken care of it at the bottom of my bottle as the apple of my eye. Twenty times, a hundred times, I have resisted the fearful desire to drink it. But no, no, Harry, I have saved it for you. 
my dear uncle, I exclaimed, and the big tears rolled down my hot and feverish cheeks. Yes, my poor boy, I knew that when you reached this place, this crossroad in the earth, you would fall down half dead, and I saved my last drop of water in order to restore you. Thanks, I cried. Thanks from my heart. As little as my thirst was really quenched, I had nevertheless partially recovered my strength. The contracted muscles of my throat relaxed, and the inflammation of my lips in some measure subsided. At all events, I was able to speak. Well, I said, there can be no doubt now as to what we have to do. Water has utterly failed us. Our journey is therefore at an end. Let us return. While I spoke thus, my uncle evidently avoided my face. He held down his head. His eyes were turned in every possible direction but the right one. Yes, I continued, getting excited by my words. We must go back to Sneffels. May heaven give us strength to enable us once more to revisit the light of day. Would that we now stood on the summit of the crater. Go back, said my uncle, speaking to himself. And must it be so? Go back, yes, and without losing a single moment, I vehemently cried. For some moments there was silence under that dark and gloomy vault. So, my dear Harry, said the professor in a very singular tone of voice, those few drops of water have not sufficed to restore your energy and courage. Courage? I cried. I see that you are quite as downcast as before, and still give way to discouragement and despair. What, then, was the man made of, and what other projects were entering his fertile and audacious brain? You are not discouraged, sir. What? Give up just as we are on the verge of success, he cried. Never, never shall it be said that Professor Hardwick retreated. Then we must make up our minds to perish, I cried with a helpless sigh. No, Harry, my boy, certainly not. Go, leave me, I am very far from desiring your death. 
take hands with you. I will go alone. You ask us to leave you. Leave me, I say. I have undertaken this dangerous and perilous adventure. I will carry it to the end, or I will never return to the surface of Mother Earth. Go, Harry. Once more I say to you, go. My uncle, as he spoke, was terribly excited. His voice, which before had been tender, almost womanly, became harsh and menacing. He appeared to be struggling with desperate energy against the impossible. I did not wish to abandon him at the bottom of that abyss, while, on the other hand, the instinct of preservation told me to fly. Meanwhile, our guide was looking on with profound calmness and indifference. He appeared to be an unconcerned party, and yet he perfectly well knew what was going on between us. Our gestures sufficiently indicated the different roads each wished to follow, and which each tried to influence the other to undertake. But Hans appeared not to take the slightest interest in what was really a question of life or death for all of us, but waited quite ready to obey the signal which should say to go aloft or to resume his desperate journey into the interior of the earth. How then I wished with all my heart and soul that I could make him understand my words, my representations, my sign and groans, the earnest accents in which I should have spoken would have convinced him that cold, hard nature, those fearful dangers and perils of which the stolid guide had no idea, I would have pointed them out to him, I would have, as it were, made him see and feel, between us, we might have convinced the obstinate professor. If the worst had come to the worst, we could have compelled him to return to the summit of Sneffels. I quietly approached Hans. I caught his hand in mine. He never moved a muscle. I indicated to him the road to the top of the crater. He remained motionless. My panting form, my haggard countenance, must have indicated the extent of my suffering. The Icelander gently shook his head and pointed to my uncle. Master, he said, the word in Icelandic 
as well as English. The master, I cried, beside myself with fury. Madman, no, I tell you he is not the master of our lives. We must fly. We must drag him with us. Do you hear me? Do you understand me, I say? I have already explained that I held hands in my arms. I tried to make him rise from his seat. I struggled with him and tried to force him away. My uncle now interposed. My good Henry, be calm, he said. You will obtain nothing from my devoted follower. Therefore, listen to what I have to say. I folded my arms as well as I could and looked my uncle full in the face. This wretched want of water, he said, is the sole obstacle to the success of my project. In the entire gallery, made of lava, schist, and coal, it is true we found not one liquid molecule. It is quite possible that we may be more fortunate in the western tunnel. My sole reply was to shake my head with an air of deep incredulity. Listen to me to the end, said the professor in his well-known lecturing voice. While you lay yonder without life or motion, I undertook a reconnoitring journey into the confirmation of this other gallery. I have discovered that it goes directly downward into the bowels of the earth and in a few hours will take us to the old granitic formation. In this we shall undoubtedly find innumerable springs. The nature of the rock makes this a mathematical certainty, and the instinct agrees with logic to say that it is so. Now, This is the serious proposition which I have to make to you. When Christopher Columbus asked of his men three days to discover the land of promise, his men ill, terrified and hopeless, yet gave him three days, and the new world was discovered. Now I the Christopher Columbus of this subterranean region, only ask of you one more day. If, when that time is expired, I have not found the water of which you are in search, I swear to you, I will give up my mighty enterprise and return to the earth's surface. Despite my irritation and despair, I knew how much it cost my uncle to make that proposition.
and to hold such conciliatory language. Under the circumstances, what could I do but yield? Well, I cried, let it be as you wish, and may heaven reward your superhuman energy. But as, unless we discover water, our hours are numbered, let us lose no time, but go ahead. Chapter 19 The Western Gallery A New Route Our descent was now resumed by means of the second gallery. Hans took up his post in front as usual. We had not gone more than a hundred yards when the professor carefully examined the walls. This is the primitive formation. We are on the right road. Onwards is our hope. When the whole earth got cool in the first hours of the world's morning, the diminution of the volume of the earth produced a state of dislocation in its upper crust, followed by ruptures, followed by ruptures, crevices and fissures. The passage was a fissure of this kind, through which, ages ago, had flowed the eruptive granite. The thousand windings and turnings formed an inextricable labyrinth through the ancient soil. As we descended, successions of layers composing the primitive soil appeared with the utmost fidelity of detail. Geological science considers this primitive soil as the base of the mineral crust, and it has recognized that it is composed of three different strata, or layers, all resting on the immovable rock known as granite. No mineralogist had even found themselves placed in such a marvellous position to study nature in all her real and naked beauty. The sounding rod, a mere machine, could not bring to the surface of the earth the objects of value for the study of its internal structure, which we were about to see with our own eyes, to touch with our own hands. Remember that I am writing this after the journey. Across the streak of the rocks, coloured by beautiful green tints, wound metallic threads of copper, of magnesium, these traces of platinum and gold. I could not help gazing at these riches buried in the entrails of Mother Earth, and of which no man would have the enjoyment to the end of time. These treasures, mighty and inexhaustible, 
were buried in the morning of the earth's history, at such awful depths that no crowbar or pickaxe will ever drag them from their tomb. The light of our Rumkorf coil, increased tenfold by the myriad of prismatic masses of rock, sent its jets of fire in every direction, and I could fancy myself travelling through a huge hollow diamond, the rays of which produced myriads of extraordinary effects. Towards six o'clock, this festival of light began sensibly and visibly to decrease, and soon almost ceased. The sides of the gallery assumed a crystallized tint with a somber hue. White mica began to commingle more freely with feldspar and quartz to form what may be called the true rock, the stone which is hard above all, that supports, without being crushed, the four stories of the earth's soil. We were walled by an immense prison of granite. It was now eight o'clock, and still there was no sign of water. The sufferings I endured were horrible. My uncle now kept at the head of our little column. Nothing could induce him to stop. I, meanwhile, had but one real thought. My ear was keenly on the watch to catch the sound of a spring, but no pleasant sound of falling water fell upon my listening ears. But at last, the time came when my limbs refused to carry me longer. I contended heroically against the terrible tortures I endured, because I did not wish to compel my uncle to halt. To him, I knew this would be the last fatal stroke. Suddenly, I felt a deadly faintness come over me. My eyes could no longer see. My knees shook. I gave one despairing cry and fell. Help! Help! I am dying. My uncle turned and slowly retraced his steps. He looked at me with folded arms and then allowed one sentence to escape in hollow accents from his lips. All is over. The last thing I saw was a face fearfully distorted with pain and sorrow, and then my eyes closed. When I again opened them, I saw my companions lying near me, motionless, wrapped in their huge travelling rugs. Were they asleep or dead? For myself, sleep was wholly out of the question. My fainting fit over, I was wakeful as the lark, 
I suffered too much for sleep to visit my eyelids. The more that I thought myself sick unto death, dying. The last words spoken by my uncle seemed to be buzzing in my ears. All is over, and it was probable that he was right. In the state of prostration to which I was reduced, it was madness to think of ever again seeing the light of day. Above were miles upon miles of the earth's crust. As I thought of it, I could fancy the whole weight resting on my shoulders. I was crushed, annihilated, and exhausted myself in vain attempts to turn in my granite bed. Hours upon hours passed away. A profound and terrible silence reigned around us, a silence of the tomb. Nothing could make itself heard through these gigantic walls of granite. The very thought was stupendous. Presently, despite my apathy, despite the kind of deadly calm into which I was cast, Something aroused me. It was a slight but peculiar noise. While I was watching intently, I observed that the tunnel was becoming dark. Then, gazing through the dim light that remained, I thought I saw the Icelander take his departure, lamp in hand. Why had he acted thus? Did Hans the guide mean to abandon us? My uncle lay fast asleep, or dead. I tried to cry out and arouse him. My voice, feebly issuing from my parched and fevered lips, found no echo in that fearful place. My throat was dry. My tongue stuck to the roof of my mouth. The obscurity had by this time become intense, and at last even the faint sound of the guide's footsteps was lost in the distance. My soul seemed to fill with anguish, and death appeared welcome, only let it come quickly. Hans is leaving us, I cried. Hans, Hans, if you are a man, come back. These words were spoken to myself. They could not be heard aloud. Nevertheless, after the first few moments of terror were over, I was ashamed of my suspicions against a man who, hitherto, had behaved so admirably. Nothing in his conduct or character justified suspicion. Moreover, a moment's reflection assured me. His departure could not be a flight. Instead of ascending the gallery, he was going deeper down into the gulf, 
Had he any bad design, his way would have been upwards. This reasoning calmed me a little, and I began to hope. The good and peaceful and imperturbable hands will certainly not have arisen from his sleep without some serious and grave motive. Was he bent on a voyage of discovery? During the deep, still silence of the night, had he at least heard that sweet murmur about which we were all so anxious? Chapter 20 Water, where is it? A bitter disappointment. During a long, long, weary hour, there crossed my wild, delirious brain all sorts of reasons as to what could have aroused our quiet and faithful guide. The most absurd and ridiculous ideas passed through my head, each more impossible than the other. I believe I was either half or wholly mad. Suddenly, however, there arose, as it were from the depths of the earth, a voice of comfort. It was the sound of footsteps. Hans was returning. Presently the uncertain light began to shine upon the walls of the passage, and then it came in view far down the sloping tunnel. At length Hans himself appeared. He approached my uncle, placed his hand upon his shoulder, and gently awakened him. My uncle, as soon as he saw who it was, instantly arose. Well, exclaimed the professor. Vatten, said the hunter. I did not know a single word of the Danish language, and yet by a sort of mysterious instinct I understood what the guide had said. Water, water, I cried in a wild and frantic tone, clapping my hands and gesticulating like a madman. Water, murmured my uncle in a voice of deep emotion and gratitude. Var, where? Nedat, below. Where? Below, I understood every word. I had caught the hunter by the hands, and I shook them heartily, while he looked on with perfect calmness. The preparations for our departure did not take long, and we were soon making a rapid descent into the tunnel. An hour later, we had advanced a thousand yards and descended two thousand feet. At this moment, I heard an accustomed and well-known sound 
running along the floors of the granite rock. A kind of dull and sullen roar, like that of a distant waterfall. During the first half hour of our advance, not finding the discovered spring, my feelings of intense suffering appeared to return. Once more, I began to lose all hope. My uncle, however, observing how downhearted I was, again took up the conversation. Hans was right, he exclaimed enthusiastically. That is the dull roaring of a torrent. A torrent, I cried, delighted at even hearing the welcome words. There's not the slightest doubt about it, he replied. A subterranean river is flowing beside us. I made no reply, but hastened on, once more animated by hope. I began not even to feel the deep fatigue which hitherto had overpowered me. The very sound of this glorious murmuring water already refreshed me. We could hear it increasing in volume every moment. The torrent, which was for a long time heard flowing over our heads, now ran distinctly along the left wall, roaring, rushing, spluttering, and still falling. Several times I passed my hand across the rock, hoping to find some traces of humidity, of the slightest percolation. Alas, in vain. Again a half-hour passed in the same weary toil. Again we advanced. It now became evident that the hunter, during his absence, had not been able to carry his researches any farther. Guided by an instinct peculiar to the dwellers of the mountain regions and water-finders, he smelt the living spring through the rock. Still he had not seen the precious liquid. He had neither quenched his own thirst, nor brought us one drop in his gourd. Moreover, we soon made the disastrous discovery that, if our progress continued, we should soon be moving away from the torrent, the sound of which gradually diminished. We turned back. Hans halted at the precise spot where the sound of the torrent appeared nearest. I could bear the suspense and suffering no longer, and seated myself against the wall, behind which I could hear the water seething and eviscerating not two feet away. But a solid wall of granite still separated us from it. Hans looked keenly at me, and, 
strange enough, for once I thought I saw a smile on his imperturbable face. He rose from a stone on which he had been seated, and took up the lamp. I could not help rising and following. He moved slowly along the firm and solid granite wall. I watched him with mingled curiosity and eagerness. Presently he halted and placed his ear against the dry stone, moving along slowly and listening with the most extreme care and attention. I understood at once that he was searching for the exact spot where the torrent's roar was most plainly heard. This point he soon found in the lateral wall on the left side, about three feet above the level of the tunnel floor. I was in a state of intense excitement. I scarcely dared believe what the Eda Duck Hunter was about to do. It was, however, impossible in a moment or more not to both understand and applaud, and even to smother him in my embraces when I saw him raise the heavy crowbar and commence at an attack upon the rock itself. Saved, I cried. Yes, cried my uncle, even more excited and delighted than myself. Hans is quite right. Oh, the worthy, excellent man, we should never have thought of such an idea. And nobody else, I think, would have done so. Such a process, simple as it seemed, would most certainly have not entered our heads. Nothing could be more dangerous than to begin to work with pickaxes in that particular part of the globe. Supposing while he was at work, a breakup were to take place, and supposing the torrent once having gained an inch were to take an L, and come pouring boldly through the broken rock. Not one of these dangers was commercial, they were only too real. But at that moment, no fear or falling in of the roof, or even inundation, was capable of stopping us. Our thirst was so intense that to quench it, we would have dug below the bed of old ocean itself. Hans went quietly to work, a work which neither my uncle nor I would have undertaken at any price. Our impatience was so great that if we had once begun with pickaxe and crowbar, the rock would soon have split into a hundred fragments. The guide, on the contrary, calm, ready, moderate, wore away the hard rock by little steady blows of his instrument, making no attempt 
cut at a larger hole than about six inches. As I stood, I heard, or I thought I heard, the roar of the turret momentarily increase in loudness, and at times I almost felt the pleasant cessation of water upon my parched lips. At the end of what appeared an age, Hans had made a hole which enabled his crowbar to enter two feet into the solid rock. He had been at work exactly an hour. It appeared a dozen. I was getting wild with impatience. My uncle began to think of using more violent measures. I had the greatest difficulty in checking him. He had indeed just got hold of his crowbar when a loud and welcome hiss was heard. Then a stream, or rather a jet of water, burst through the wall and came out with such force as to hit the opposite side. Hans, the guide, who was half upset by the shock, was scarcely able to keep down a cry of pain and grief. I understood his meaning when, plunging my hand into the sparkling jet, I myself gave a wild and frantic cry. The water was scalding hot. Boiling, I cried in bitter disappointment. Well, never mind, said my uncle. It will soon get cool. The tunnel began to be filled by clouds of vapor, while a small stream ran away into the interior of the earth. In a short time, we had some sufficiently cool to drink. We swallowed in huge mouthfuls. Oh, what an exalted delight! What rich and incomparable luxury! What was this water? Whence did it come? To us, what was that? The simple fact was... It was water, and, though still with a tingle of warmth about it, it brought back to the heart that life which, but for it, must surely have faded away. I drank greedily, almost without tasting it. When, however, I had almost quenched my ravenous thirst, I made a discovery. Why, it's calibit water. A most excellent stomachic, replied my uncle, and highly mineralized. Here is a journey worth twenty to spa. It's very good, I replied. I should think so. Water found six miles underground. There is a peculiarly inky flavor about it, which is by no means disagreeable. 
Hans may congratulate himself on having made a rare discovery. What do you say, nephew? According to the usual custom of travellers, to name the stream after him. Good, said I, and the name of Hansbach, Hansbrook, was at once agreed upon. Hans was not a bit more proud after hearing our determination than he was before. After having taken a very small modicum of the welcome refreshment, he had seated himself in a corner with his usual imperturbable gravity. So, said I, it is not worthwhile letting this water run to waste. What is the use, replied my uncle, the source from which this river rises is inexhaustible. Never mind, I continued, let us fill our goatskin and gourds and then try to stop the opening. My advice, after some hesitation, was followed or attempted to be followed. Hans picked up all the broken pieces of granite he had knocked out and using some tow he had happened to have with him, tried to shut up the fissure he had made in the wall. All he did was to scold his hands, the pressure was too great, and all our attempts were utter failures. It is evident, I remarked, that the upper surface of these springs is situated at a great height above us. As we may fairly infer from the great pressure of the jet. That is by no means doubtful, replied my uncle. If this column of water is about 32,000 feet high, the atmospheric pressure must be something enormous. But a new idea has just struck me. And what is that? Why be at so much trouble to close this aperture? Because, I hesitated and stammered, having no real reason. When our water bottles are empty, we are not at all sure that we shall be able to fill them, observed my uncle. I think that is very probable. Well then, let this water run. It will, of course, naturally flow in our track and will serve to guide and refresh us. I think the idea is a good one, I cried in reply, and with this rivulet as a companion, there is no further reason why we should not succeed in our marvellous project. Ah, my boy, said the professor laughing, after all, you are coming round. More than that, I am now confident of ultimate success. 
One moment, nephew mine. Let us begin by taking some hours of repose. I had utterly forgotten that it was night. The chronometer, however, informed me of the fact. Soon we were sufficiently restored and refreshed, and had all fallen into a profound sleep.